Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've called an uncommon fellowship. We've been looking at the description of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and seeing how this fellowship, this new family of faith, really was uncommon. It was unlike anything uh, that the ancient world knew, that it was a fellowship, uh, a community that was knit together in Christ across all of the lines that normally divided uh, the human family. And so we have been looking uh, to see what is our calling as an uncommon fellowship of faith in our place and in our time. And what we're going to look at uh, this morning is particularly the generosity of this early church. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that whenever anyone had need, those of means sold their possessions and put it at the disposal of the church. It was a church, uh, a fellowship that operated with an uncommon economy. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, that God's plan, God's plan for the renewal of the entire world is to plant outposts of another kingdom, of his kingdom, right smack dab in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And these outposts, these local churches, are marked by a unique culture, a unique way of life that leads them to stand out in all of the kingdoms of the world. Whether you're a church uh, in the middle of contemporary America or the, the church in the middle of contemporary China or a church in the middle of the ancient Near East, all of us, all the churches, stand out as uncommon in their surrounding world. You know, every kingdom, every nation has its own values, it has its own customs, And every kingdom has its own economy, its own way of treating uh, its resources, its own way of doing business, its own way of taking care of others. And so we want to look today at what is the unique calling of the church to have an uncommon economy within the economies of this world. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. A number of years ago, two brothers in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, made a decision to take over a family business. Alan Barnhart uh, was in his 20s. He was a thoughtful uh, Christian at the beginning of his life, and he found himself in the midst of a vocational crossroads. Uh, Formed by his faith and informed by it, he was considering a calling to the mission field to go and live in another country as an ambassador for the kingdom of Christ, or to go back into the family business, which for them was the construction of custom cranes and rigging for large-scale construction projects. 
And at this crossroads, he prayed and he considered, and Alan Barnhart decided that God was leading him to go back into his family business and to take over Barnhart Crane in rigging. So he left one potential calling that would have meant denying himself, uh, living on the support of other people, likely going through his entire career with very, very little, living as a missionary on a foreign field, for a vocation that he knew offered the prospect of great wealth, that if it was successful, if the company grew, he would find himself uh, perhaps quite wealthy. And so at the outset of this new journey, as he stepped in to work for his father's business, he gave two years, two years to searching the scriptures to try to understand what the Bible taught about wealth and about our resources and about how we should handle it. And over the course of this two years, he was left with two major thoughts, two major headings under which he put the Bible's teaching of wealth. The first was that everything belongs to God that absolutely everything in the world belongs to God. He made it. He's in the process of redeeming it. It belongs to him. And that all of the stuff that we have in our lives, whether we have a lot or a little, whether by the world's standards we are wealthy or by the world's standards we are poor, that all of everything that we have belongs to God. And we're accountable to him for it. And the second thing that he realized was that money, wealth, posed a mortal danger to his soul, right? Not that being wealthy, not that owning his own business would inevitably lead to moral peril, but that there was, if we take the teachings of Jesus seriously, there is a very real danger to the power that wealth, that the power of earning money has on our hearts, that money uh, has a unique pull on the human heart to not just take the place of a good thing that we need for our lives, a good thing that we steward for our neighbors and our families, but it has the power in our hearts to become an ultimate thing. The thing thing that becomes an idol in our lives that we owe ultimate allegiance to. And so in the lips of Jesus, we have sayings like, uh, man cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon, the God of money. Or we have uh, cautionary tales like the tale of the rich young ruler. Right, who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. What do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, sell all that you have. And the, great, the rich young ruler leaves, dejected. Luke tells us because he had a great deal of wealth. And so Alan Barnhart stepped into this stewardship of this company, knowing that everything he was given belonged to God and that it posed, at least on some level, a danger to his soul. And so he and his brother and both of their wives made a radical decision as they took over uh, Barnhart Crane and Rigging, which was that they were going to cap their income from an early stage of their company at the level they needed to live on. And for them, the commitment was that they were not going to make more than the average member of their Sunday school class in their normal kind of middle-class Memphis church. Their first year in the company, uh, Allen gave away $50,000 that year, which was more than he had set his income at. Now, they they adjusted their income as they added kids to their family, as as their needs expanded. They moved it up in conjunction with their community. But largely, it stayed uh, within that range. And amazingly, uh, for the last 10 years, this company has given away a million dollars a month 
a million dollars a month towards charitable work, missionary work, the church, and the work of the kingdom. In 2017, the Barnharts actually gave away their entire company. They placed the company itself, a $250 million company, into a trust uh, for charitable giving. They literally gave away their company. Now, we all love to hear uh, stories of heroic generosity like this. You hear a story like that, and you're like, man, that's amazing. Think of all the incredible things that were done. But all that happened there in this story of Alan and Eric Barnhart is two ordinary Christians whose view of the world and their money was shaped under the alternative economy of the church, where they learned within that alternative economy the value of money, the true value and what could be done with their wealth, the amount that that a human being truly needed to live. They allowed their community even to speak into their financial life, informed by that parallel and countercultural view of money. They were able to then go out into the world and live their lives with such radical and extraordinary generosity that the world took notice. The same world that thinks that the church talks about money too much, right? The world that says preachers, all they ever talk about is money. When all of a sudden you see somebody, somebody who by all accounts could be a multi-multi-millionaire living on 50 grand and giving away their company. Now all of a sudden the world goes, man, what, what planet are you from that you do these things? And the biblical answer, is that they are living in a world that's yet to come. The world the the scriptures call the kingdom of God. In the midst of this world, in this world that hoards money and fights over money, that's anxious over ever having enough, they live as citizens of another world. So let's look a little bit at this economy of the kingdom. You know, we don't often often think about going to the scriptures uh, to learn economics. But the scriptures teach some powerful uh, lessons in countercultural economics. You know, in some ways, God's liberation of his people in the Old Testament is his moving them from one economy into another economy. Right? When Israel lived, when the people of Israel lived as slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt, they lived under a man who believed himself to be a God, in whom everyone in his kingdom believed to be a God. And in that that economy, Pharaoh owned everything. Pharaoh owned all of the possessions. Pharaoh owned all of the people. We could say that all of the means of production were in Pharaoh's hands. And he didn't care what it did to people for him to maximize his wealth. Right? The Exodus is full of the stories of, uh, of Pharaoh's abuse of the Hebrew people, telling them famously to make more bricks for his construction projects without straw, right? Always trying to to maximize profits at the cost of his labor force. And so they lived literally as slaves, as people who didn't have their own freedom over their own possessions, over their own income, over their own earning, even over their own bodies. They didn't have anything. They literally, from the world's perspective, belonged to Pharaoh. And so when God liberates them, when he brings them out of slavery in Egypt, He takes them out into the wilderness. And one of the major things that he does is he takes them into a new economics 101. The wilderness is a school of kingdom economics. What do the economics of the wilderness look like? 
Well, God says, it's going to rain bread on you every morning. Right? The heavens are literally going to open up and I am going to feed you what you need. And you will always have enough. You'll never have to compete over it, right? You won't have to wake up with your neighbors and scrounge out there. The early bird's not going to get the worm. You don't have to fight over the best of the manna, right? He said, take take what you need for the day and bring it in, and there's going to be more than enough for everybody. So they go from a scarcity economy where they always had to worry, was there going to be enough? Am I going to get fed? Am I going to have enough? To a world where they have to learn to believe that under their God, all of their needs will be provided for. And then God wired another lesson into the way that the manna worked. You see, if you took too much manna, if you took enough manna that you couldn't eat it and you saved it overnight, it rotted and spoiled. Right? So he says, listen, working harder than your neighbor isn't going to do you any good. Right? Getting out a little bit earlier and getting a little bit more and saving it, maybe you think that, hey, you know, one day the manna is going to grow up, is going to dry up, but if I save some, then I can start to sell it. Or maybe these other communities that don't have it miraculously rain bread. Maybe if I save up enough, I can sell it for a profit to the Canaanites. Right, but all of these things, God says, no, no, no. Don't take more than you need. Take just what you need. There will be all that you need. Trust me for tomorrow. You don't have to hoard. You don't have to live anxiously about tomorrow. There's going to be enough. And then finally, so he teaches them it's not competitive. He teaches them against hoarding. And then finally, he teaches them that they have to live with this work-rest balance. He says, basically, on the sixth day of the week, or in, in, under the, uh, <clears throat> on Friday, go out, harvest enough manna for two days, and then on the Sabbath, don't go out and get any. There's not going to be any, but there will be enough on six days that you can rest the seventh. So he, he builds in a check against workaholism. Right, against that belief that if we have to always work, if I work more and maximize my profits, work seven days and never take care to rest or worship or just let myself be, then I'm going to go hungry. He says, no, no, you can rest. Work, harvest, but then rest on the seventh day. And so God takes his people to learn this new economy of the kingdom. And then when when he plants them in the promised land, again, he brings these lessons home. He says that there's always going to be enough. And he puts things in place in their economy to make sure that there was always enough. That landowners, there were checks placed, that they weren't to harvest all of the crops in their land, but they were to leave the corners untouched. So that the poor and the stranger, those journeying through the land who didn't have enough, would always be able to live on the extra, would always be willing to have enough. Furthermore, he put a system in place for every seven years, on the Sabbath of years, every seventh year, all debts were forgiven. So if you'd gone into debt on the seventh year, you got out of debt. And then on the the 50th year, every 50th year was to be a year, what they call a year of jubilee, where if you had been forced to sell your land for some reason, if your family had been forced to sell your land, on the jubilee year, you got your land restored to you. You got your land back. Because you have to understand Israel, and this is hard for us, um, Israel was an agricultural economy. So everyone in Israel was a farmer. When Israelite second graders showed up for school and their teacher said, what do you want to be when you grow up? 100% of them said, I want to be a farmer, right? They all were farmers. Uh, That was the only job uh, in Canaan. And so for in an agricultural economy, your land is your life. 
Your land is your ability to earn a living. Your land and what it produces uh, is everything. To lose your land was to be given over, uh, to abject poverty. One description of that in Job chapter 24. Job defines the poor uh, in verse 11, or verse 10. It says, The poor go out naked, without clothing. Hungry, they carry sheaves. So they're working the harvest, but because it's somebody else's land, they have to give it all back, and they're, they're left hungry. They tread the winepress, but they suffer thirst. Right? They're harvesting other people's wine, but they never get to drink it because they don't own it. They don't own the land. But on the 50th year, on the Jubilee year, they were to take it all back. They were to get their land back, to have their stability and their production restored to them. Well, amazingly, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus picks up this theme of the Jubilee, this theme of restoration of people to the land, to describe his own ministry. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands up to describe his ministry, he says, Behold, the Spirit of God is upon me quoting the prophet Isaiah, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captives. He uses the language of jubilee, this language of restoration, to describe his own ministry. What he's doing is announcing that good news that God has provided for the poor, that God is looking out for his people, rich and poor alike. And so most scholars uh, of the New Testament believe that that's what's happening in these early descriptions of the church, in Luke 2 that we've looked at, in Luke 4 that we just read, that it's that jubilee economy, that practice of caring for the poor, that's happening in the early church, that where each one is bringing their, their possessions and giving to anyone as they have need. Luke keys us off in, in this uh, Acts 4 passage when he says there were no needy persons among them. That's a simple quote of Deuteronomy 15 where God's giving the command to this Sabbath principle and says, there shall be no poor among you. That you will so care for one another, so give to one another, so support one another, that in your life, in your life together, there will be no poor among you. That you'll be living in that day. You know, the, the prophets use over and over economic language to describe the kingdom of God. Micah 4.4 says that in the day of the kingdom, uh, each man will take shelter under his, own, uh, uh, under his own fig tree and under his own vine, and they won't live in fear. And so what Luke is describing is them living the, ec the economy of the kingdom of that day, here in the midst of this day. And what does he tell us about that economy? First, he tells us this, that it's an economy of grace. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. When the New Testament writers set about to describe what's happened in Jesus, what Jesus has done for his people, one of the words that they use over and over again is this language of grace. It's, uh, it's the Greek word charis, which it literally means gift. It literally just means gift. That when the people were trying to understand what God has done for them, what he's done for his people, they said it's a gift. That Jesus is a gift. The cross is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. That we live in a community that's marked by charis, by, by a gift freely given. Now in the Roman world, the world in which these early Christians lived their lives, gifts were never truly gifts with no strings attached. 
right? Gifts and the gift economy of Rome were always given uh, in an effort to get ahead, right? So you might give a gift to a wealthy patron and hope that they would give back to you. Or you might give a gift to a peer in the hopes that they might be in a place to help you out down the road, right? The gift giving was always attached in some way to the worthiness of the recipient, that you gave gifts, not with no strings attached, but in the hopes that somebody would give you a gift back in return. And so what a lot of, the, what a lot of New Testament scholars say is that the radical nature of the New Testament vision of a gift, of grace, is how incongruent it is, how the scale of the gift totally has nothing to do with the worthiness of the recipients, that God lavishes his grace on us in Christ, precisely in the midst of the time where we are his enemies, where we are sinners who bring nothing to the table, no ability to give back to him to earn his gift. He gives out of his sheer generosity. One scholar, John Barclay, put it this way. He says, gifts were normally given discriminately, even if lavishly, to people considered on some grounds fitting or worthy recipients of the gift. Under these circumstances, gift could be associated with reward. But in the New Testament, uh, this incredible uh, counter-intuitive uh, grace creates boundary-crossing, gift-giving communities free of normal human hierarchies of worth. Radical boundary-crossing communities that surprise the world's hierarchies of worth. So in the New Testament, you could end up with these communities where you've got Jew and Gentile living together, rich and poor living together, slave and free living together under the common ground that they are already the recipients of a gift that none of them could have ever deserved. Already common in knowing that what we bring to the table, what we bring to this community is our need and our finding together of common grace, a common need finding common grace. You know, really, that is, uh, I think, the magic that makes the church a unique community. You know, we often say in this church that in the world, people do tend to cluster with people who are basically like them, right? We know that that happens uh, all around the place, right? Uh, it happens along socioeconomic lines. More wealthy people tend to hang out together. More middle-class people tend to hang out together. Uh, people who are fighting to get by are often clustered together. Right, that even the neighborhoods of our city tend to force us into places where we end up clustering with people who are basically like us. We cluster together racially. We cluster together politically. So you find yourself all of a sudden where most of your friends read the same articles you do, believe the same kinds of things that you do. And the cross calls us, the gift of Christ calls us this kind of boundary-crossing fellowship. And honestly, this main... We've talked a lot recently about the difficulties that come in our church and that are ahead of us as a church as we seek to truly seek racial reconciliation as a body of believers, right? And that is a tall mountain to climb. But I think in some ways that living together across socioeconomic boundaries is every bit as fraught and maybe more so as learning to live together across cultural and racial lines. It's incredibly difficult there's a reason why people tend to cluster together socioeconomically, right? Because if you're, if you're in a community and you experience yourself to say, you know what, I don't know that I bring a whole lot to this community. I'm in a position where, I, where I'm fighting to get by. I'm unemployed or I'm underemployed. 
I don't, I don't know that I bring a lot to this community and I see people around me that seem to have more wealth. They seem to drive nicer cars. They seem to live in nicer houses. There's an incredible amount of shame that can come on you in the midst of that situation where you start to wonder, do I belong here? Do I offer something here? Am I wanted here? What do I contribute? Right, when, when, it, when, it comes, when, the, when the offering plate comes by, is the bit that I'm putting in, does it matter in the kingdom? Does it matter to this church? And on the other hand, it can be awkward if you're in a, if you're in a community with all sorts of different income levels and you know yourself to be, to, to be fairly prosperous. It can be hard to know, well, how do I engage? How do I share my life? How do I open my home? How do I do this together uh, in a church? And the, the, only, the only, I don't have a magic bullet for this except for to say, yeah, it's awkward. Right? And sometimes there is a healing power in naming the awkwardness right? and saying that instead of dancing around one another, we need to lean into it and to say and to believe that God has called us together as we are in the same way he called this early Christian community together, in the same way that he called them together across uh, economic lines to be in one family, to live in one new family. Right? We know it was a diverse community economically because it says that some people had need, other people sold stuff. Right? So there are people in need and there are people with stuff to sell. And what we know is that you miss out on something of the beauty of the church, the beauty of what God has in mind for us when we cluster together. We say, no, you know what, it's too, it's too awkward being around upper income folks, so I'm not going to do it. Or it's too awkward uh, being with people who have less than me, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to find a community like mine. We know that we miss out on the shared gifting that we offer one another. And so let's press in together as a community of grace, realizing that each one of us brings the same thing. We each bring our common need of grace. And each one of us offers gifts that the other needs. Each one of us in our own lives, in our own personalities, in our own skills and abilities, brings something that one another needs that we'll miss out. We will miss out on if we don't get to know it. So it's an economy of grace. It's an economy of generosity. It's an economy of generosity. One commentator describes what's going on here in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. One commentator describes this as an economy of radical availability. Radical availability. It was a group of people living as family and treating their possessions as, as though they belonged to everyone. Right, it wasn't forced. We're told that uh, later on, um, which uh, we're not reading for, for length, there just wasn't enough time to, to answer all the questions in the passage about Ananias and Sapphira, which comes up after this. But Ananias and Sapphira are two people. It's a couple who sells some land, lies about how much they sold it for. So let's say they sold it for $300,000. They came to the church and said, hey, I sold it for $100,000. Here's $100,000. So it, they, they, they lied about what they brought, claimed to give it all, but then didn't, and God strikes them down dead. You can see why I don't have time to explain all of that right now. Um, but one of, the things that Luke said, one of the things that Peter the apostle says to them is he says, wasn't the land yours before you sold it? And then after you sold it, weren't the proceeds yours to do whatever you wanted with? Right, so this isn't a forced communism, right? This isn't a place where every, your, your possessions are taken from you. This is a position where everybody treats their possessions as at the disposal of the community whenever need arises. 
So it was a voluntary, intentional availability. It's the lesson that Alan Barnhart learned, which, is, which was everything belongs to God. Right? All of my stuff belongs to him and is at his disposal for his people whenever he asks. You know, this is one of the most radical shifts that can happen in your life when you think about how you, how you handle your money. It's the shift from all of it belongs to me and I give 10% of it to God to all of it belongs to God and he can do whatever he wants with it and he will provide for me. You see the difference between 10% is his and the rest I get to, I get to pick. God, you don't get to decide. To open-handed, all of it's yours and I trust you to provide and you can ask me to do anything you want with the rest of it and it's yours at a moment's notice. That kind of open-handed living is what the New Testament calls us to in generosity. To treat our possessions with open hands, knowing that the Father loves us and will care for us and won't leave us without. Right? That's what Christian discipleship looks like around our money. You know, we shouldn't, this shouldn't be a surprise that Christians talk about money, that Christian pastors talk about money. Because the path of Christian discipleship from being sinful, self-oriented people to being people whose lives are ordered around love of God and love of our neighbor. Certainly that has to do with how we treat our possessions, right? That we go from treating all of our resources as mostly being for us to orienting our resources too around love of God and love of neighbor. That it's for him and it's for them. It's for what he wants in his kingdom and his church and it's for our neighbor and their needs whatever those needs may be, that that is uh, the Christian answer to the all-consuming greed and consumerism of our world. That, that hunger to always get and acquire more, to hoard and to keep. The church has always said, no, no. If you want to transcend that, treat all of your possessions as mostly not about you, but about God and about your neighbor. So it's a community of generosity and then finally, it's a community of equity. We've already said there were no needy persons among them. Right? This doesn't mean uh, that everybody in the church had the exact same amount. Right? It doesn't mean that uh, they, they put it all into a pot and divided it all equally. But what it does say is there is no one who is in need among them. That they so ordered their life together that poverty was eradicated in their membership. You may, have, you may remember uh, a few years ago, there was something that became a trend. It was, you know, Bono was advertising for it. So when Bono gets behind something, it's a trend. Um, but there were these little white bracelets uh, that said on the Make Poverty History. Does anybody remember the Make Poverty? It was, it was in the era of little rubber bracelets. So we had Lance Armstrong uh, and Livestrong. And then we had the white ones that said Make Poverty History. And the New Testament tells us that one day poverty will be history. Right? One day when Jesus returns, the language of poverty and lack, homelessness, hungry, orphan, widow, all of those words will be wiped out of the human vocabulary. There will be no more poor. Right? Amen? That, that is good news. It also tells us that in this life, we will never entirely make poverty history. Jesus says, the poor you will always have among you. There's always going to be a need for cultivated generosity towards the poor. But what the New Testament also tells us is that in the church, it is possible to wipe out poverty. 
Within the community of faith, it's possible to live as though there are no needy among you because you're living as family together. Because as family, you're saying, no, no, if if one is hungry, all are hungry. If one is in lack, then all are in lack. And so we are gonna orient our lives as a family to take care of one another. We can, uh, in the church, and are called to eradicate uh, poverty, to care for one another in such a way that the poor among us are lifted out of poverty. You know, uh, some of you did a, we did a a Wednesday evening Bible study uh, here in this room um, around a book called uh, When Helping Hurts. It's a wonderful book about poverty alleviation strategies for mercy and justice ministry. And one of the things that Brian Fickert, the author, says is he says that when you ask, uh, when wealthy people are asked about poverty, they always describe poverty uh, in terms of financial resources, that to be poor is to lack money. But when you ask the poor, uh, whether it's in the United States or they've done surveys around the world, their organization works around the world, uh, people who are in a position of material poverty don't describe poverty by lack of money. You know how they describe it? By lack of relationships. That poverty is fundamentally a relational category. That it's about not only are you in need, but there's no one around you to come around you when you're in need. You know, I think about my own life. The, 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 the systems and the relationships that would have to break down for me to truly find myself in a place where I was on the street with nothing. I've got my own, I've got my family. You know, I've got my wife, my children. I've got my extended family that would take me in and look out for me. I've got an extended family of friends. I've got a church, right? There's this web of relationships that's necessary as a safety net to keep any of us, to keep any of us from poverty. And fundamentally, poverty is a place of of not having the access to those relationships, to have access to the resources, to have access to the jobs, to have access, maybe it's uh, to the training or to the education, right? To get yourself up and out. And so what Fickert says that I think is brilliant is that if poverty is fundamentally relational, then the redemption and healing of poverty takes a relational approach. It takes a community like the church where we're knit together as family, where we've got that social safety net provided for one another, where we can care for one another, where people in need of training and education and budgeting and, or people in the need of, of help to get even can get that within the family of faith. This is why Randy Neighbors, uh, the man who we had in to do our vision weekend, one of his taglines is the best thing we can do for the poor is to plant the right kind of church in their midst. Right? The sing- God's plan, God's plan for the redemption of, of human society is gospel-centered churches extending and treating one another as family in the church and lifting one another up. And so uh, I, will, I will end with three quick bullet points of practical application. How much should you give? Uh, let, you know, brass tacks. It's always a, a question that people have. Uh, what I tell people, what I advise people when they think about their giving uh, to the church, I've never been comfortable telling people give 10% or God's gonna get you, right? That, that's not how we handle this. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, it's true that God's people were commanded to give a tithe, so 10% of their income, uh, to the temple. In the New Testament, there's never an explicit command about tithing. But what is commanded, what is called for, is generosity. 
which we believe is not less than a tithe. So what I tell people, when whether it's uh, people new to the church or people just starting out uh, in a job or in their marriage, is that 10% is a good rule of thumb. For some, uh, you're in a place where 10% is aspirational, right? You look at 10% and you say, man, I, I, that's a great goal. You know, right now I can't give 10%. Maybe I'm giving 2%. Maybe I'm giving 3%. But I could, I could pray that God would enable me to be generous to the point where over the next 10 years, I could ramp up to where I can't afford uh, to tithe. And so you can use it aspirationally. For others of you, 10% is not enough, right? For Alan Barnhart, he got to a place where he said, you know what, 10% isn't generous. I, I, I can afford to give away much more than that and to live on much less. And so for some of you, you need to pray and be imaginative about how much you can afford to give. For others of you, you need to be in a place where you, you need to come to the church and ask not to give to the church, but to receive from the church, right? We've got a deacon's fund that you're gonna hear about in just a little bit, about how we as a church can come together and care for people when they're in a position of need. And we expect that over the life of our church, sometimes you'll be in one place, sometimes you'll be in another. Sometimes you'll be in a place where you're in a position to give, and in other times you'll be in a position where you need to admit that you need help. And we want to be there for you uh, in any of those positions uh, that you might find yourself in. But it should be done intentionally. If your giving is done, uh, you get to the end of the month and you shake your pocketbook and you see what's left. Uh, and you don't really know how much you give. Uh, that's the worst approach. You'll always give more if you're intentional about it, if you're sacrificial about it, if you set out at the beginning of the month or the beginning of the year and say, hey, this is what I'd like to try to give over the coming year. So it should be done intentionally. It should be done corporately. Uh, where every person's gift matters. You know, one of my favorite things we do as a church uh, is when we get together and we do a potluck meal, right? We do a, we do a potluck, we'll get together. Usually it's outside in the summer. Uh, it's usually not. Um, and everybody brings a dish and uh, we might, the church might provide, uh, you know, the main dish, but we all bring something and we sit around and we eat, right? Maybe you grew up in church and church potluck is just as, you know, as reliably as Wednesday night comes around, casseroles come around. Did you know that the potluck, apart from just being kind of a weird thing that Christians do, uh, is actually a parable for what the church is meant to be like? The, the feast of the kingdom of God is a potluck. It's a potluck where everybody brings something and they lay it at the table and there's always enough for everybody, right? The kingdom of God isn't, uh, it's not a catered dinner where you pay somebody to bring in all the food. right? It's not a soup kitchen where some people who can't afford anything come and those who can spoon it out. It's a potluck feast where the gifts of everyone are brought to the middle, where everybody contributes, where everybody brings some of their resources, some of their abilities, some of their life, and they offer it because we need one another. We need uh, that potluck feast that is the meal of the kingdom. And then the final thing practically uh, that I'd point our church to uh, is that this ministry, uh, the ministry we feel called to, a ministry that's inclusive of the poor, rich and poor alike, is gonna require an excellent, empowered, and celebrated diaconal ministry. That being a deacon uh, in this church, uh, we need well-trained, high-powered, sacrificial, committed deacons because deacons extend the compassion and mercy of Jesus to our members and to our neighbors. And so I wanna uh, bring up one of the heroes of our church, Todd Bishop. Um, Todd is, uh, I say hero because he's currently one of two deacons. Um, and I'd like to, Todd, just to tell you a little bit about our diaconal ministry, what they do, our deacons fund, how it works. So, Todd. Thanks, Dave. Definitely not a hero. <laughs> 
Um, the Deacons Fund, uh, just so you all know, as many might not be familiar, is not a, um, it's its own fund. It's not, it's not a budgeted item from the overall giving of the church. Um, it is a fund that is set aside specifically for what Dave just said, uh, to live out the mercy uh, that the members and the local community of our church need. Um, so many times that looks like different things. Um, it might be a small one-time helping folks with groceries or paying a bill, uh, maybe it's a medical bill or fixing a car, um, emergency fund type stuff um, that allows uh, the individual to help get to where they need to go. Um, currently, uh, we're very fortunate. We have a pretty healthy deacons fund right now. We've got $19,746.87 in the deacons fund. Um, so thank you very much um, for that. Um, that uh, in 2017, we used that multiple times for many different families or different individuals. Um, we used $3,194.07 of that um, to um, give back mercy to those that were in need. Um, so as Dave mentioned, uh, Dan Pitts and myself, the only two deacons, um, but we have uh, uh, kind of a a list of, of how we give out that, uh, those funds, what we uh, give to, what we don't give to, and certainly oversight from Dave and the, and the elders as well. Um, we don't give out loans, we don't give out cash, uh, and none of it comes with judgment at all. It's strictly there um, to deliver mercy when it's needed. Um, one quick story, um, I was given permission by this individual to share. Um, many of you might know a um, lady in our church called Kristen Huntoon. Um, we got introduced to Kristen um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, she was just living in the local community, uh, came on some hard times. Uh, somebody introduced her, us to her, and um, she had a source of income, um, but to Dave's point, she did not have a community around her. She didn't have family relationships. She wasn't from here, um, and so she needed things that um, a, a normal support group would be able to provide. Um, she needed to move. She had no way to box up her stuff and trucks and, and get her to a new place. Um, she had struggled with addiction in and out of um, over the last several years. Um, and eventually she, she became homeless. And so we, we Dan Pitts and I, um, kind of walked through that along with the elders with her helped her get her to a new place, um, helped her to get to the short-term um, program here at the City Rescue Mission so she wasn't living on the streets. We're very fortunate to have that as a resource here. And ultimately, over time, um, she was uh, entered in, so she's now in the long-term program here at City Rescue Mission. She had since become a member of the church and recommitted herself um, to walking with the Lord. So it was just a really great story that um, over that year and a half or so long process, the Deacons Fund allowed us um, to walk alongside with her and help her in little ways along the way and keep in, uh, in relationship with her. Um, and it's just a great picture of how that all um, can come together and it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of the church. So we thank you for that. Um, there's two ways you can give specifically to the Deacons Fund. Um, on your check in the memo line, um, if you wanna give a specific amount or that whole check amount, just write Deacons Fund on it and it goes into that um, kind of side bank account that's set aside for those needs. Or if you give online, there's a drop down and you can specifically um, do that as well and, and designate um, your giving towards the Deacons Fund. So I thank you for that. And if you do find yourself today in a, in a place of need, uh, the church is not, we're, we're not in the saving money business. We're not in the, you know, we're not trying to build up a stock portfolio with that money that's in the uh, deacon's fund. It's there and it's been given to the church to be given away uh, when in need. So 
uh, please do let us know uh, if, you're, if you're at a place. You can talk to me, you can talk to one of your elders or certainly one of your deacons um, about that. So let's uh, stand together. We are going to practice what we preach and give now, uh, both in our uh, offering and in our voices as we sing uh, to God our praises. Let me pray uh, for our offering. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that all, everything in this world belongs to you. We are stewards of what you've given us. Lord, we pray uh, that we as a church would always be a generous church, that we would be a church uh, that's inclusive of rich and poor alike, where together as a family uh, we can care together, journey together, and extend uh, your kingdom together. So bless these gifts to further your work in the church and in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.